Hi, everyone. This is Lamar Stanley, your host of the M&A Source Podcast. A quick note about today's episode. This episode was actually recorded late in 2019, slightly before the COVID-19 pandemic began here in the United States. So there's reference to the conference where this recording took place and obviously no reference to the COVID outbreak or economic downturn created by the shutdown. However, the information is still very valuable and a great indicator of the useful information and courses taught at M&A Sources biannual conferences. Hopefully that we can get back online in person soon. With that said, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of M&A Source Podcast, sponsored by M&A Source, the source of opportunity and professional growth for mergers and acquisitions intermediaries and strategic professionals in the lower middle market. I'm your host, Lamar Stanley, Head of Business Development and Originations with GenCap America, a lower middle market private equity firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. And joining me today is Bill Loftus, a co-founder of Blue River Financial Group, a Midwestern middle market investment banking firm. Blue River's M&A services include buy-side and sell-side representation, business valuations, and raising capital for privately held companies. Blue River is a national and international deal sourcing provider to professional, professional acquisitive clients, such as private equity firms, family offices, and other institutional investors. And on top of having years of deal experience across multiple industries from financial services, aerospace and defense, forestry, automotive, et cetera, et cetera. Bill is also a loyal member of M&A Source and devotes many hours to teaching courses like the one he taught this morning at M&A Source's conference here in San Antonio. The course was entitled Helping Sellers Identify the Most Suitable Buyers and Transaction Structures. Bill, thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure, Lamar. Well, before we jump into the topic, though, I did want to give the audience a little bit about your background. Can you give us kind of your history and the background of Blue River? I actually was raised in Michigan, went to college in Michigan, I went to graduate school in Colorado. After uh, Colorado, I got into the banking industry and then joined a family business in the title insurance <laughs> space. My dad and I owned that title company. We sold it to a public company. That was really my first experience in the M&A world, and I was fascinated by the process of selling to a great big public company. My dad was an attorney, and I had a master's degree in finance, and you would think between the two of us, we would get a transaction right, but we found later that we made so many mistakes, it actually became the impetus for a career. So I went into the M&A industry to try to help business owners avoid some of the silly mistakes we made. That's spectacular. Best lessons are the ones you pay for, right? <laughs> Speaking of lessons then, I, I did want to do, as I had mentioned, talk to you about the course you, you spoke about this morning at our fall conference here in San Antonio. Can you tell us a little bit about the course and, and what exactly it is you were covering? As I mentioned, my own personal experience was that we made lots of mistakes in the transaction. In fact, I've interviewed hundreds of business owners over the course of time, and it seems like there's a common lament. These owners all seem to share, I wish I knew then what I know now about the transaction. I would have done things differently. 
And that is a problem because when they sell the company, it's almost like taking your hands off a chess piece. The move is done. And for many of these owners, the business represents the largest part of their net worth. And if they make mistakes in the transaction, chances are the mistake is permanent, unrecoverable, and it can really leave them in a much worse position than if they had done it right. So my objective in the course is to help intermediaries identify how they can really help sellers through the process to get ideal transactions. So can you talk to us a little bit about the spectrum of buyers? Because you do mention in the course's title, finding the right buyer and the right transaction structure. So starting with the buyers, what is the diversity in our lower middle market of the different types of buyer groups? Well, it's interesting you raise all of the different buyers. In some cases, I think middle market companies are going to be attractive to professional acquirers as opposed to individuals or maybe a small company in the competitive area that has never bought a company before. So if you're selling to individuals, those are amateur buyers, and very often they're likely to lead you to trouble. It's better off if you're a middle market company to sell to a very sophisticated and professional acquirer. And the reason I say it's more certain to close, just better attributes of the transaction all the way through with, with better buyers. However, if the owner is unprepared and is reactionary to the process, chances are they'll be entering this arena with sophisticated professional buyers when they're just an amateur. So if they don't get prepared and they don't have an intermediary helping to level the playing field, they'll probably get skinned no matter who they sell to. Right, right. We have seen that with our own deals when we're selling. People forget that the likelihood of a close is one of the factors when calculating expected value. You know, if you don't get to a close, the the enterprise value is zero. So I, I feel I do feel like a lot of people lose sight of that. Well, to to your point though about other buyers, there are buyers for companies within the company. It could be employees, it could be the management, it could be children of the founders. There are always internal buyers, but if we're focusing outside of the company and we're looking for professional buyers. We're looking typically for financial acquirers who are by and large private equity firms and family offices. And if not those, then they could be strategic buyers, which might be a public corporation who can realize synergistic value from acquiring this particular company. That's a really good point. So different companies are better suited for different types of buyers. What are some of the character traits or the, the elements of a company that, that you filter with to decide this is better suited for a financial buyer, this is better suited for a strategic buyer, you know, this might be a better MBO option, ESOP, or, or whatever it happens to be? Yeah, good question. The buyers typically, as professional acquirers, know what they're after. A buyer might want a majority recap. They might want the management team to stay in place. And they might want a whole lot, bunch of things. But the buyer typically knows exactly what they want whenever they go into a transaction. So the key to helping an owner identify what the right buyer is is to walk through the owner's needs as a matter of first order. And secondly, to walk through their driving motivations. So for example, if an owner has 75% of their net worth tied up in the business, it would probably be inappropriate to take them to a transaction that's going to lead to a lot of post-closing risks. So if they wanted to sell to their kids, there might be a private equity group that would like to sponsor that transaction. But if the seller is going to wind up with subordinated debt or other things in the capital structure, 
that leave them exposed after the transaction, that might not be suitable for them. If they are looking at selling the company and planning to retire and depending on those resources from the company, they need a pretty bulletproof transaction so they're not exposed post-closing. That is interesting. So it's not as much, and I mean, it is, the company's factors certainly play in to these types of decisions, but, you know, the owner's goals are as important in this as some of the characteristics of the company is what I'm hearing. The owner's goals for sure, but part of the problem for owners is they can't always identify their own goals. Selling a privately held company is very often not a rational decision. Owners are driven by their emotions. They're driven by a lot of factors that you and I might not recognize. But if if it's purely rational, we can typically walk them through what the ideal outcome might look like. But very often their motivations are in conflict with one another. So I want to sell to my kids. One thing we know about kids is they don't have any money. <laughs> so, so the kids might go out and get senior debt from an SBA lender, and then the parents still have to provide subordinated debt on the transaction. And if mom and dad are depending on that money for retirement, and we just loaded up a company with all kinds of debt in the capital structure, that we put the kids at a disadvantage, and we have the subordinated debt they're at risk. Mom and dad want to do a lot of things, but their motivations may be in conflict. I, I need the capital for retirement. I want my kids to be in ownership. I've, what am I going to do? And that's where the intermediaries can come in and really help to build a hierarchy of needs and motivations that will lead the parents to the right transaction alternatives. In light of that, I mean, obviously, that's a very complicated decision. And, you know, we make light of the fact that they, not everyone has their goals in mind, but it's because it is such a complicated and there's a lot of variables associated with it. When do you recommend a business owner, one, start thinking about a transaction and two, maybe start preparing for said transaction and, and kind of what, what does that look like? Or how do you think about that? I think they should pursue it in some respects the way private equity pursues it. You're a professional investor. What is one of the important decisions when you go in and buy a company? It's the exit. And I think if owners would treat their businesses like a wealth-creating asset, the exit should be something they always have in mind. So when should they start looking at it? As soon as they own it. But more practically, I suppose, once they reach the age of 55, they ought to start considering transaction alternatives Somewhere around then, almost like, forgive this, me if this is a little bit crude, but it's almost like getting a colonoscopy. You ought to begin looking at this business and how you're going to transition out when you're 55. And then you should do it again the next year and when you're 60. Because you'll discover, we have some anecdotal evidence for this, that when owners reach the age of 65, if they still haven't sold, the value of that company may decline hmm. in the eyes of professional investors. And that's because the business may not have been investing in growth as it had in the past when the owners were younger and more inclined to take some risk. Or the notion is the owner is going to retire and there goes all the institutional knowledge. So somehow or another, when an owner is 65 and the assumption is they're going to leave the business soon after the transaction, the buyer is assuming all the risk. And when the buyer has the risk, the value goes down. So it's better if an owner wants maximum value to enter a transaction when they're closer to 60 than 65. So 
when should they begin considering a transaction? Probably 55 and every year thereafter. That's a really good rule of thumb, and that's that's a pretty interesting point that a lot of people, I feel like, overlook is a transaction will occur. Something will happen relating to the leadership of the business and the ownership of the business. So it's best to get out in front of it, try to make it as a rational, a rational decision as possible, realizing that these companies are a little bit more than a, than a car in some cases. So, I'll just point out a friend of mine, Rich Lowry from, from this organization, wrote a book on transaction timing. I'd love to give him all the credit, but I've embraced this in my own practice. The, the right time to sell a business is when the market is ready and the owner is ready and the business is ready. When those three things are aligned, it's time to sell the business. But if an owner waits until they're a little bit older, 64, 65, the opportunity to really influence the value of that business is, is past. Mm-hmm. The time to influence the value of that company is when, they, when they're still active and involved and energetic. That's when you really influence the value, not at the end of your ownership cycle. You bring up a good point that I know you talk about in the course that I didn't want to miss, which is market conditions. That affects when we and, and how we find a good buyer for companies. How do you think about market conditions and how do you advise owners around that? Well, some things owners can control, some things they can't control. The market is one thing they cannot control. But when there is money in the M&A industry, that is, there are a lot of buyers with a lot of money, if interest rates are low and money is available, they're just more money chasing deals. It's not too difficult to understand supply and demand. When there's more demand for businesses, there are not that many outstanding opportunities for private companies, but there's a lot of demand that's going to drive prices higher. So you pay attention to what's really going on in the economy. When you start to hear terms of recession, tightening of, of capital, in particular, if it's a if it's a business and it's serving the oil and gas industry, for example, there are a lot of things that influence the markets far beyond our control. So we have to take a look at everything that's happening in the marketplace to determine if it's a good, good time to sell. And I mentioned it earlier, kind of going off topic here a little bit, but, but ESOPs, how often do you see those types of situations where that's a really good fit and do you have any strong feelings one way or the other about that? And, and how, when are those situations most appropriate? Well, it's interesting. In the class, we look at a whole variety of transaction opportunities that may be available to sellers. Some of those opportunities are governed by the size of the business. For example, if somebody wants to enter into an ESOP, it may be a perfect solution for them, but the business probably needs to have an enterprise value of greater than $10 million, probably closer to $20 million because the cost of administering an ESOP can be really very extensive from annual compliance costs and annual valuations and and other things, the cost of an ESOP are really expensive. So the business has to be big enough with professional management and other attributes that even make it a suitable candidate for an ESOP. Secondly, most of those ESOPs continue to have owner involvement. So the owner may be driven by tax strategies, may be driven by a number of things, but in most cases you'll see an ESOP where the owner has substantial wealth outside of the business that liberates them to make the kinds of decisions to to enter into an ESOP. For example, a lot of these ESOPs, the owners will have subordinated debt, but they continue to be the CEO, so they feel comfortable assuming that extra risk because they still control the flows of, of the, 
the business operation. So you have to look at the situation of the owner, the size of the business, and other factors to determine whether it, even an opportunity for them or not. What are some of the most common mistakes advisors or business owners make when selecting the buyer, in your opinion? I suppose the biggest mistake they owners make is they feel comfortable making decisions, and they've been making entrepreneurial decisions their entire lifetime, and they believe in themselves, and they believe in their guts, and they believe in, they just believe in their ability to make really smart decisions. But M&A is a completely different industry, and the things that made them successful will not necessarily serve them well through an M&A transaction. So I think having an owner with too much self-confidence is sometimes maybe a big mistake. They need to understand a number of things before they can make an effective decision. What is the value of the company? So many owners will put their finger in the air and say, I think the value of my company is, is uh, this because I was at a CEO group. And the CEO has all said, oh, you ought to be getting 12 times EBITDA. It has no bearing with reality. So if they come into the transaction with unrealistic expectations, they're just nuts. Right. Why would you share all of your confidential information with anybody if there's no chance of getting the deal done? If you come with an expectation that's just too high. So owners need to understand the realistic value of their business. They need to understand what transaction options are suitable for them, given the size of their business. What are their driving motivations and needs? What do they have to really achieve as a business transaction outcome? And if they have some of those things in mind, like what are the taxes on the deal and how will the marketing process actually work, they need to have a good understanding of all elements before they go to market. Any pointers for managing those expectations or calibrating a business owner, helping them kind of get up to speed on, you know, not rushing to uh, maybe a hasty decision around a certain buyer or a different group? We do spend a great amount of time at our practice walking through the financials, helping an owner understand the financials, showing them why their expectations may not even be bankable. Most buyers are going to use some form of debt, and if the transaction won't produce enough free cash flow to cover the debt service, we'd say that dog won't hunt. And we can show that seller why the deal is not achievable at the level they're asking. So we'll just walk them through valuation realities. If they want a higher number and their business isn't worth that at that time, we can point out things they can do to improve the business. We just don't want them to go to market if they believe they can achieve a number that at the end is just not achievable. It's not good for anybody. Well, that's a deal that has zero value to anybody because we can't close it. It can become a tattoo on your reputation. I've represented a company and we're able to get it sold and, and just there, it's just a stain on your reputation. So we want, we want sellers to have a real good understanding of value before we go to market. And so you've spoken a little bit about the different types of buyers that sellers need to choose from and, and which types of buyers are best suited for different types of companies. But I know and then the universe is financial buyers and, and strategic acquirers, and then there's hybrids of, of both. But in each, how wide is the spectrum of different types of financial buyers and different types of strategics? Just because I know a lot of owners out there look at, say, like private equity firms like us, and think that we're all relatively cut from the same cloth. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I can. The private equity industry is 
primarily taking commitments from institutional investors to put funds to work and deliver returns to the institutional investors. It's not unlike retail investors investing in mutual funds. And all mutual funds have different objectives. Some have objectives of investing in growth stocks. Some are investing in income stocks. So the mutual funds all have different objectives. Private equity groups have the same, and they come into their institutional investors with a, a pitch of this is how we're going to invest our capital. For many of them, the whole purpose is to invest in family generational transfers. So mom and dad want to sell to the next generation, but the kids don't have capital. So the private equity group will come alongside and sponsor the children to liquidate mom and dad's holdings, which frees them up for retirement without risk, and enables the kids to continue to run the business and the legacy continues and so forth. So some private equity investors have specific objectives of supporting the family in that transfer, not to eliminate family members and put in their own management team. Now, some private equity groups do have that as an objective for sure. We want to sponsor specific management teams and come in and put our stamp on, but that's a different objective for a different private equity firm. For us here at M&A Source, it's really important to understand what are the primary goals of the private equity buyer? And the best way to find that out is just call them. They're here at these expos, and you can talk to them one by one. And just ask them, hey, if I have a company and the owners want to pass it on to their kids or to the management team, is that something you would sponsor? And would they have to worry about you firing those kids later on? See what kind of answer you get. But you'll be amazed. There are some of the funds here in our organization that absolutely love this kind of transaction, and we would be remiss if we didn't make an effort to understand that. I will resist the urge to make the GenCap plug at this point and talk about backing family members. However, I do I do think that that is an important distinction. I do, I do think that different owners are looking for different things. Some owners want to bring in a private equity fund to help them scale a rocket ship to the moon, and that's one thing. And some owners just want to find a way to retire and ensure that their company stays intact. And, and so it is important to know the distinction even within these specific categories of, of the universe of buyers, who they are. Is there any diversity on the strategic side? How wide is the spectrum there? Well, very often when sellers are looking for a maximum transaction value, they'll pursue a strategic buyer. And the reason they do that, of course, is there are quantifiable synergies. So if new buyer is going to be able to have revenue uplifts and expense efficiencies that equate to a million dollars of new EBITDA per year. And the multiple is seven times EBITDA. So there's $7 million of synergistic value. The key is how do you divide that between the buyer and the seller? Most of the time the buyer wants it all and seller wants part, but that's the idea of a strategic buyer. But there are other factors behind value that matter to a seller. I give the illustration of a, a client in northern Michigan who had nice company with about 600 employees. It just so happened that the town had about 4,000 citizens. That was the biggest employer in town. And a public company came in and wanted to buy it. The public company from another area of the country felt like they had excess capacity in their plants and they could take all of the production to another state. Fortunately, the seller said, it's not all about money. 
I have a duty to this town. I have a, I have a civil responsibility. So he would not sell to the strategic unless they agreed to keep the manufacturing and employees of the town right there in Iron Mountain, Michigan. So there are factors that you can, one strategic buyer will agree to keep it in place, another will say, no, we're not gonna buy it without moving it. So lots of elements that matter to a seller and all those things have to be weighed in the decision. Those are all great points and things that we hear and, and it, there's just a wide berth of factors that matter most to owners and it's important that you marry those up with the, with the potential buyer. And I don't want to spoil any more of the content. There are a lot of transaction types that we didn't get into. There are a lot of different types of buyers that we didn't get into that I heard you, know, you go into this morning during the course. So I'll stop it here and our listeners can come to the next M&A Source Conference and hopefully catch the rest of this content. But I do want to say thank you, Bill, for coming on today. And I really enjoyed the chat. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Lamar. So if you'd like to learn more about identifying the correct buyer types or transaction structures or learn more about any other M&A related topics provided by M&A Source, please visit M&A Source's website, masource.org, and please feel free to reach out to our staff listed there. And I would also highly recommend any M&A professional to join M&A Source and also to attend our semi-annual conference events where courses like the one discussed today will be taught. Thank you for supporting the show, and to find episodes like this one, please visit masource.org. I'm your host, Lamar Stanley, and I look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of the M&A Source Podcast. Thank you for joining us for the M&A Source Podcast. If you would like to learn more about M&A Source or would like to join, please visit M&A Source's website, www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast.